0: Good morning. I hope this morning that you're thanking God for air conditioning. I know I was chatting with somebody before the service, I said, I love the heat. I love watching the heat from inside my house through a window where it's kept at 68 degrees. The refrigerator never runs, we keep it so cold in our house, it just… Should we open the fridge to warm the house up a little bit? Um, We're going to be here this morning in 2 Samuel 21 and 22. If you want to make your way to 2 Samuel uh, 22, we're going to read, I'm going to read actually just a a short section of Scripture in 2 Samuel 22. I'm going to read verses 2 through 7, and uh, once I'm done reading, we'll just have a brief time of prayer to ask God's help as we uh, consider His Word this morning. Uh, 2 Samuel 22, verses 2 through 7, just a small part of a prayer and a, a, a song of David. It's also almost a mere copy of a Psalm 18, I believe. So, Psalm 22, I'm going to read verses 2 through 7. You can follow along with me in your copy of the Scripture or on the screens. And then after I read this section, we'll have a time of prayer. This is what David said. Second Samuel 22, verses 2 through 7. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my Savior. From violent people you save me. Verse 4. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God from His temple. He heard me my voice. My cry came to His ears. May God bless His Word read here in our presence today. God, we give You praise and glory and thanks that we know You hear us. You hear us in this moment. We know that because of the work of Christ and the presence of Your Holy Spirit in each believer that You are here with us, with us this morning. You are not afar off. You are not waiting for us to come up with some idea to get you to show up. You are already here. You have anticipated this morning more than we have. You are enjoying this moment more than we are, and you are looking forward to the work you're going to do in us for your glory both today and every day. So we give you praise, God, for your presence with your people. We thank you, God, for the opportunity you give us to serve you and your kingdom this week with Vacation Bible School. We do ask God for an effective ministry of the gospel this week that many young people and families will hear and believe the message of the gospel for forgiveness of sins. We pray, God, for safety. We pray, God, for energy and sustaining strength. And most of, God, all, most of all, God, we pray that you would be glorified in the significant efforts and service of the individual's working in Vacation Bible School. We thank you, God, not only for our church, but we also thank you for Bethel Church up on the hill. We thank you for Pastor Olson and his uh, staff and volunteers who work diligently to do gospel work. We pray this morning in particular that you might stir in their midst that many would come to believe Christ for forgiveness of sins today. We thank you, God, for the work of the gospel mission here in Medford, and they ask that we not offer prayer requests today, but this morning instead to praise you for the men who have been saved by grace here recently and put their faith in Christ for salvation at the gospel mission. God, we thank you for that work of redemption and ask, God, that you would move those individuals to Christ-likeness as you always promised to do. And God, we lift up Tyler Horn this morning, and our hearts go out to Louise and your whole family. God, just do a work in Tyler. Uh, give the doctors wisdom. Fix what needs to be fixed. Give healing where there needs to be healing, which there is much. We trust you, God, but our hearts break. We also pray for Russ Kreekow and ask for your hand on him, and the same for Kurt Techmeyer that you might offer healing and strength in the moment of their difficulty. And for those who need to trust You for salvation, God, and we remember Vernon and Beverly, Robert, Ken, Gary, and Rose, we ask that You might do something in their lives today, even this week, that would move them to trust Jesus for salvation. God, as we spend a little time in Your Word, we ask that You would faithfully conform us to the image of Christ in it by the power of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 21 and 22 here this morning, and you can find your way there. One of the things that's true of many of our relationships in our culture and in our places, whether it be in our homes or our places of business or where we do our shopping, is I would say this, many of our relationships are transactional. Many of our relationships are sort of based on the notion of a transaction. Uh, The question is... uh, if I give you this, what will you give me? If I give you $10, will you give me uh, the 10-pack of tacos hey, you know, or something like that? If, if I uh, do you a favor now, I can count on someday in the future you doing uh, me a favor. Uh, if somebody comes and offers us something for free, what's the, what's the first thing that comes in your mind? What's the catch here? Uh, that indicates, that's a, a clear indication that everything in our culture is transactional because we know nobody just gives stuff away for free. Uh, everything is, uh, what are you going to do for me and what it, what is the cost going to be and when do I have to return the favor? Now, this isn't necessarily true of all cultures. Uh, Seth was telling me a story about his trip to Albania, which maybe he related here. It's more difficult sometimes to do business there because to go buy an item, you've got to spend two hours having coffee with the store owner. And it, and. And their business is a little bit more relational, perhaps. Now, you still got to pay for the item. But there's an anticipation of relationship. But I think we really need to understand, though, if the air we breathe, the culture we live in, the, the water we swim in, if we were a fish, so to speak, is that things in life are transactional. Every relationship is transactional to some degree. The, the, the thing we must admit is that we often or always, many times... Approach God that way. Our relationship with God is transactional. This means if we're hoping that God might do a thing in our life, a particular thing in our life, we start thinking of all the things we need to do to get God to show up. I'm going to give up this. I'm going to give up that. I promised to volunteer here. I'm going to give this away. Many of us have prayed that most profound prayer of prayers. God, if you'll get me out of this mess... I will get right back into it. Yeah, I mean, that's what we should be praying, but that's, you know. So we approach God from this sort of, uh, what does God need from me in order for me to get Him to intervene in my life in a particular way? I think that's normal. Like I said, I think that's how we approach most relationships in our life. Well, what's interesting, though, is when we read the Scripture and we learn who God is in the Scripture, we discover the Bible, though, doesn't present God that way. The Bible uh, presents a completely different storyline than this notion that I've got to do something to get God to show up, or God needs something from me so that uh, He will be motivated or moved to intervene in my life in some way. But what the Bible tells us to understand about God is this, it's not what does God need from me, it's the reverse. The question is, what do we need from God? The entire story of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is, what do I need from God? We tend to approach it, though, in the reverse. i got to figure out what God wants so I can give Him what He wants. So quick question on that regard. Is there anything you have that God is lacking? Is there anything right now you happen to have that one thing in your possession that God is missing, and He's spending His time pacing back and forth in heaven, wringing His hands going, what kind of uh, horrible life situation can I put them through so they'll finally give me that thing I want? I mean, what kind of God would that be? That's a horrible God. yet, that's the God, I think, that many of us serve, that He is just looking for ways to run us through the ringer so that we might uh, be squeezed of those things which He so desperately needs. The storyline of the Bible is different. The storyline of the Bible is, what do we need from God? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning in 2 Samuel 21 and 22. What do we need from God? There's three stories in this passage. I'm going to give you three stories. You Ready? There's a great story of justice served. The second part of this is a great story of giants dying. Aren't you excited? Not just one. David and Goliath, please. How about four giants, Few reverses. Very good. And then finally, we have a story of David's great prayer. Now, what we're going to do is a little bit something different is we're going to do them in reverse order. What do we need from God? If you want to turn with me again to 2 Samuel 22, we're going to look again at David's song of the Lord. What do we need from God? First thing we need from God, we need a refuge to be safe. What do we need from God? We need a refuge to be safe. This is a long song. The entire chapter of 2 Samuel 22 is David's song, and the theme of his song is David is, excuse me, delivered from all of his enemies by God Himself. The theme of the song is David is delivered from all of his enemies by God. And the first six verses in particular, David says, I'm going to trust you, God, to deliver me from my enemies, and I'm not going to trust my skills as a warrior, nor am I going to trust my my resources as the king. So if you were the best warrior in the land and you had all the money in the land... Wouldn't you be tempted to say, well, I'm going to get myself out of this mess because I'm the best at what I do and I have all the money I need? And what David says in verses 1 through 6 is this, the Lord is my rock. He is my fortress and my deliverer. I'm not going to be able to hack my way out of this one. I'm not going to be able to buy my way out of this one. David completely trusts God and God alone to be his refuge, to be his safety, He's not trusting in the things that he has, his skills, uh, his resources, his uh, vast army, his 30 mighty men, or his three mighty men. All of these things are good things that David uh, enjoys, blessings from God, but the fact is David trusts in God alone. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. Scanning down with me, look at verse 10. David had prayed, God, come to me in my distress. That doesn't mean David hadn't been praying up until the point of distress, but when it came right down to it, the moment it was there, if God didn't show up, David was in fact a dead man. And and as we read earlier, God heard him from his holy temple. Verse 10, God parted the heavens and came down. So David prayed to God in heaven, and the Bible tells us in his distress, God heard David. And the heavens opened up and God comes to David. And this poetic imagery that David describes here is absolutely incredible. Look at verse 8. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because He was angry. I don't know how to describe this to you, but maybe you have small children in your home or you have had in the past. I don't know what kind of food your kids like, but maybe there's that one treat that they really enjoy. Maybe, I mean, for me, um, I really like um, blackberry cobbler with, when it's hot. Uh, And then, yeah, somebody say vanilla ice cream, yeah, Uh, goes without saying. Um, (laughs) Vanilla ice cream on that. Well, so what will happen is your kids will be doing whatever they're doing because whatever their life is about is so much more interesting than than their parents are. Until you say there's blackberry cobbler or there's chocolate pie or there's cake uh, or uh, your favorite TV show is on, then what happens? It sounds like a herd of buffalo flying down the hallway. They're fighting with each other now. One kid is punching the other one, fish hooking his lip or something like that, and that's illegal in my house, no fish hooking. And this is, what, this is what, what David is describing God is doing. So sometimes we think of David or God, and we pray to him, and he's like, oh, really? I just got comfortable. I mean, I just sat down. I've been working all day long, saving the world, and now you come to me with your whatever. But see, what David describes God as is when his his voice hit the eardrums of God, heaven parted and God came flying out of heaven like kids chasing cobbler. And it it says the earth trembled and quaked. So he wasn't like hesitantly, well, I'm going to see what's up with you and kind of decide what I'm going to do. What God here is being described as eagerly engaged in the need of His Son, flying out of heaven. uh, The heavens are shaking. The earth is shaking. He describes at one point the oceans being blown back by the wind from God's nostrils, The, the channels of the oceans being exposed, because God comes so eagerly out of heaven to heed and answer the prayer of His Son that the earth is shaking from God's eagerness. He calls in distress, and God comes running. When God comes running to David's need, how big and important is David's resources and skills at that point? Now you realize how silly it was to be even tempted to rely on my skills and my resources because here comes God running from heaven to my aid. This is God's disposition. Do you remember the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the challenge he gave them at Mount Carmel. And what did uh, uh, Elijah, Elijah was really good at trash talking and he said to them as these prophets of Baal were whipping themselves into a, a bloody mess and he said, scream louder. Maybe your God's on a break. Maybe he's going potty. But do we pray to God like that? Maybe, he's unbra- maybe he hasn't heard me. I mean, I'm serious about this, but he's not doing anything. We have to, uh, we have to take our, our understanding of God's disposition, not from our perceptions, but from what the Word of God says. And what the Word of God tells us is when God hears the prayer of His people, He comes flying out of heaven like kids chasing their favorite treat. And the earth quakes with His eagerness to respond and hear and save and provide refuge. God, in verse 15, shoots His arrows and He scatters His enemy with great bolts of lightning. He routed them. If we're lucky this afternoon, we're going to see some of this action. There's, I think there's thunderstorms in the forecast for this evening. So when those hit, that's God answering your prayer. I don't know what your enemies are, but they may be being hit by lightning. I don't know. Um, God routed the enemy. He saved David. Verse 17, He reached down from on high and took hold of me, and He drew me out of the deep waters. God reached down into the depths where David could not save himself, and He draws him out of the deep waters. What do we need from God? We need to be drawn out of the deep waters. We need a refuge. We need Him to save us and redeem us and to heed our prayers and respond with the energetic and powerful response that only He can provide. Last little part of this we're going to look at is down in verse twenty-one, and then we'll move on to the next story. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me, for I have kept my ways uh, of the for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I should say, I am not guilty of turning from God. Now, who's re- who's writing this? Who's writing this? Anybody remember? David. Anybody want to say, uh, Dave, about the purity thing? I don't want to be one to kind of throw, you know, always be living in the past, but you did kill a guy after sleeping with his wife. So how can David write that God hears him because of his righteousness, God hears him because he has not turned from him, God hears him because he has always turned to God and he is not found guilty of anything? Maybe, and by maybe I mean certainly, David is not seeking to gain righteousness or have righteousness that's of his own making. Any chance that maybe David considers himself righteous not because he has done right, but because he is related to the right God? So when David sinned, where did he turn? He turned to God who was righteous. And when he turned to God who was righteous and he said, I have sinned, what did the prophet say in regard to David's sin? It's forgotten. And in a moment, in the wave of his hand, David, the murderer-adulterer, is righteous. And see, David here is trusting not in his own behavior that God might respond to him. He's trusting in the righteousness of God who has made him righteous that God might respond to him. So David here is not praying for God's rescue because he deserves it. He's praying for God's rescue because he's righteous in God and he's turning to God himself. David is saying, I am perfect, not because I am perfect myself, but I am perfect because I am in God and I am at rest in God. Maybe we can say it this way we think this, if I am good, God will bless me. And the reverse we tend to think as well. If I am bad, God's going to get all up in my business, theologically. When something bad happens in our life, we try to figure out what we did wrong sometimes. And when something good happens in our life, it's just because we're, in, we're intelligent and clever. We think that God is one who will pour blessing on me if I am good and will pour trouble on me if I am bad. Here is the problem, and David understood this problem. We can't be good. We can be better than the guy next to us. That's the old how-do-you-get-away-from-a-bear trick. You know that story. You don't have to be faster than the bear. You have to be faster than your buddy. So the only way I get into God is I just have to be better than the people around me. Well, then the trick there is to hang around with people who aren't that good at all, right? The problem is we can't be good. So David in his prayer here and David in his reliance on God, we have to understand it's critically important if we're going to understand what God is like. David is counting on God both for his righteousness and for his rescue. So this is how good a deal this is. Let me explain this. God says, I will only rescue you if you're righteous. And David goes, good call. Will you make me righteous? And God says, yeah, no problem. Now I'll rescue you. So what's David's job in this scenario? Trust the rescuing righteous God. And say, can, can I have a piece of this action? And God says, tears open heaven, comes flying out of heaven, and storms to earth that says, I am here to rescue you because you are righteous in me. David cries out in his distress, and God comes running. Here's the rub. It means we have to see that we're in distress. It means we have to come to the place in our life as Christian or non-believer and say, I am in fact in need of God, and there's nothing I can do to get myself out of this mess. There's, uh, I realize that if I'm going to approach my relationship with God as though it's a transaction, that when I do good, He shows up, I can't afford that relationship. I am in distress. God, I need you both to show up and to make me righteous so you will show up. And in our distress, we cry out to God and we take advantage of Him. And what does He do? He's been waiting the whole time to hear that prayer. He's been waiting for us in our distress to finally give up on all of our other ways of knowing Him and just say, God, make me righteous, and God, rescue me. We have to understand, though, our need. God does, in fact, save, but let's move on to the next place. Uh, God does more than save us. God God does more than just merely rescue us from danger. Look at uh, 2 Samuel 21, 15 through 22. So there was a battle with the Philistines. We're not sure exactly when this occurred in the uh, life of David. These are a number of stories kind of thrown together, so we're not sure when they happened. It doesn't really matter. But what we do know is there are four men mentioned here, and four men who die, they are Philistines. And here's the best thing we know, is they are all giants. We know this from the last verse of chapter 21, verse 22 actually. These four were descendants of Rapha in Gath. And they fell at the hands of David and his men. Likely, they were related to another giant you may have heard of, Goliath. Have you heard of him? Yeah, you got stoned. Stay with me. I have to make sure you're awake. I got to throw stuff in to make sure you're still with me. He was a little hard-headed, though. I'm done. I'm done with that. So, four giants. Thank you. Yeah, amen. I got an amen for that. All right, moving on. Thanks, Mike. Four giants killed by four of David's men. So David, earlier in his life, kills Goliath by God's hands. God provides him victory over Goliath by slinging a stone and cutting off his head. And here in this account, we have four other giants who are killed by four of David's men. And we're not going to spend time necessarily going through each of the men and each of the giants. What really needs to be understood, there's four giants killed by four of David's men One man in particular, verse 17, is Abishai, son of Zuriah, Joab's brother. And he had to protect David because David was almost killed by one of these giants, and Zuriah had to come to David's aid, killed the giant that was going to take out David. And they told David, never again will you go to battle with us, because the lamp of Israel must not be extinguished. So they were saying to David, you, you're getting too old and tired, you're spending too much time in the leisurely business of the court, you're not, being, you're not physically capable to come with us in a battle anymore, and you're going to get killed. You're going to get yourself killed, man, and it's not going to do any of us any good to have you dead. So you need to stay back at home because we do not want the lamp of Israel uh, to go out David had killed Goliath, he had killed a giant, but now he got himself in over his head, so to speak, and David almost got himself killed. The lamp uh, is an important symbol here, or an important imagery, all throughout the Old Testament. Back in 1 Samuel 3, when Samuel the prophet was called, if you remember the story, Samuel was a young boy living in the temple. And God called to Samuel in the middle of the night, and in verse 3 of chapter 3, we're told the lamp of Israel had not yet gone out. So the presence of God, the special personal presence of God with His people was still there with young Samuel, even though it appeared to be just a flicker. And and we carry that along to David, and we see David as the king who was the king who was after God's heart. He pursued God and God's things in particular. And what the the men were saying of David is saying, David, you're the king and that's good. But more importantly, you're the one God has anointed and you are that symbol of God's personal presence with His people. So this was not uh, them simply saying, well, we don't want to lose a king because it's so hard to find kings nowadays. It's their concern that in David's absence, they might lose or or at least no longer be as sensitive to the personal presence of God Himself. Each of these men wanted a place in God's economy, in God's people, with God Himself, a place to belong, really. And they were concerned with David, God, they they would no longer have that presence with God uh, Himself. We see this in Acts chapter 2 as well. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes upon the people of God. This is after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And in verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 2, do you remember what it's described when the Holy Spirit comes upon His people? There's a loud rushing wind, which is surprising seeing as how it was indoors. And then flames of fire, it said, settled on each of the people. A symbol at that time of the Holy Spirit indwelling those who... Had received Christ by faith, the, the flame, the lamp of God's presence itself. Now, instead of needing a king to keep God near to us, what do we have to keep God near to us? God Himself, the Holy Spirit, indwells each and every one of us. Although this is important to remember, over in Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, I'm just going to turn there, just a bit of a warning. This is what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, "'I have this against you. You've forsaken your, uh, the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place.'" And what he's saying to this body of believers, not to individuals, this isn't a concerning message that says, if I don't obey God, He's going to leave me. What he is saying to a body of believers together is this, he says, listen, you are a church gathered uh, to be in my presence, to uh, glorify my name through my uh, purposes and my mission to reach the lost and to worship uh, God together and pray together and know His Word together. And he says, if you're not going to do that anymore, the lampstand's going to be removed. Your church is going to be dissolved and go away. It isn't a warning that they would lose their salvation, but rather he would lose, uh, this church would no longer exist, and it came true. The church is no longer there in Ephesus. The, the, the presence of God as demonstrated as, uh, through David as the lamp of God, and the men uh, belong to David, and they said, we belong to David, and that's an indication that we belong with God. Because David is our king and David's God is our God. And so what these men needed from, from, from God was a place to belong where they could be with God and have a role in God's economy. This, what's important to understand here with these guys is this. They did not follow a giant killing king. Now, David was the giant killer. He kill, killed Goliath. They followed a giant killing God. And how do I know that's true? Because they killed giants. If they only followed a giant-killing king, the first time they confronted these four guys, what would they have done? Uh, David, this one's on you, man. You're the giant killer. We'll sit back and watch. But see, that's not what what, what God was doing in these guys' life. He says, you're following David and you're following me, so what I'm doing in your king David, I am doing in you. This is what's funny. We think that... David killing Goliath is is kind of impressive. These guys kill four giants, and and Zariah does it without preparation. He has to show up at at the spur of the moment and save David. This act actually is much more impressive an act militarily than David killing Goliath. What do we need from God? Number one, we need a refuge to be safe. And number two, as these four men indicate, we need a place to, to belong I need a, we need a place uh, where God can be personally known by us and where God can personally make me and you into the person we're supposed to be, which as it turns out is just like Christ. We see in these four giant killers, God was doing a work in them that they were just like their king, giant killers. And now God by His Spirit calls us as believers to follow our king, Jesus, and be, and be like Him. We should intervene in the world like He did to to seek and save the lost, that they might be redeemed, to overcome the, the things in our life by the power of the Spirit, that we might belong in Him, not because we have something to offer, but rather because Jesus offers us everything. You can't be closer to God than Jesus is. Think about it. Can you be closer to God than Jesus is? There's no one closer to God than Jesus is. Well, I I mean, we could argue the Holy Spirit, but you know what I mean. I can't, there's no way for me to be closer to God than Jesus himself. And this is what's incredible. So Jesus says, You're in me. I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved Himself and gave Himself for me. So, how much closer can I be to God than I am right now in Christ? You can't be. You, you can't be any closer to God in Christ than, you, than, than Jesus himself. And in Christ, we are as close to God as we can possibly be, just as we see in David's men. God does a work in David, not just to save their bacon all the time, but God does a work in his men, so they have a place to belong in God because of David. And now we have a place to belong in God because of Jesus. In fact, God's purpose is to make us like Jesus Himself. If David's men became giant killers, God calls us to become not merely Christ followers, but that, but Christ imitators. Jesus was not joking at the end of His life when He said, you will do average things. Remember that verse? You will do things that generally can be explained by natural means, but every now and then something kind of cool will happen. Now, what's the verse? You will do greater things than these. David, you killed one giant. Your, your guys are going to kill four. Jesus brings the good news of his salvation to a relatively small region. He does great ministry where he takes a, a gigantic ministry reaching thousands and by the end of his life is able to reduce it to about 100 people. Very successful. And then he leaves. And then over the course of 2,000 years, we have seen millions and millions of people rely on God for salvation and forgiveness of their sins. Jesus calls us to join Him in what He is doing, and we're going to do it. We can't be closer to God than Jesus Himself, and we're in Christ, so we have a place to belong. What do we need from God? We need a refuge. Secondly, we need a place to belong, as illustrated by excuse me, the giant killers in David's army. All right, last part of this. 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1. What do we need from God? We need a refuge. We need a place to belong. And finally, we need an advocate to defend. We need an advocate to defend. During the reign of David, there was a famine Uh, They ran out of food for three successive years, and so the result was David got an idea that perhaps God was sending them a message that something wasn't right in their midst. And so David pursued the Lord, and he said, what's going on, God? Obviously, something isn't right. What do we need to get right here? And God said this, uh, this is end of verse 1, it's on account of Saul and his blood-stained house, it's because he put the Gibeonites to death. So what had happened when Israel had invaded the promised land, Joshua in Joshua chapter 9 had made a peace treaty with the people of Gibeon. Do you remember that story? They put on their old clothes and got their old stale bread and they looked like they were all haggard and met the Israelites and said, "We'd like to make peace with you." And they, "Where are you guys from?" "Oh, way far away." I mean way over there. I can't even remember it's been so long. When we left home, this food was fresh. And now look, it's all nasty. And uh, so they made a peace with Gibeon. And then they discovered Gibeon was just like right around the corner, just like right over there. But but the fact is, God held them to their treaty. Now, the Gibeonites served the people of Israel really as slaves uh, for their life. But during King Saul's reign, it's not recorded anywhere in the Bible, but from this passage, we know it occurred. At a certain point, Saul tried to wipe out the Gibeonites. And he shouldn't have done that. As king of Israel, he should honor the treaties of the people of Israel. And so God now wanted to seek justice for the people of Gibeon because of Saul's injustice against them. To make known the need for justice, God had brought a famine to David. And so David goes to the people of Gibeon and says, okay, listen, we understand what's going on. What do we need to do to take care of this? The important verse, if I can find it, is verse 3. This is what David says, David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? So what is David's aim here in dealing with the broken treaty with Gibeon? It's this, he does not merely want to make amends. Do you hear what he said to the people of Gibeon? blank check, what needs to happen so that when I do it, you would gladly pray for the relief and the salvation of the people of Israel. So what he's saying is, okay, Gibeon, you remember that people that tried to wipe you out and destroy you? What would it take for you to change that and want to pray for their salvation? That's a pretty big request. He's not asking merely, how do we make amends? How do we square this up? He's saying, what would it take for me to reconcile you to such a degree that you would want to willingly pray for the salvation of the people of Israel? This isn't the first time we've seen something like this over in Job 42. I don't know if you know how the book of Job goes. Really bad, most of it. And then also the rest of it. Um... But what happens is Job goes through all these horrible, horrible, horrible things. And then on top of that, uh, God sends him three friends who were just awful. And they spend the entire time telling Job that he's going through all these horrible things because he's a dirty, rotten sinner. And God uh, doesn't deny that he's a dirty, rotten sinner. But he also says, no, guess what? I can make people go through the bad things if I want to uh, for my glory and for their good. And so God really comes after these guys in, in Job 42.7. The Lord said this to Job's friends, I'm angry with you. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So the friends had spent their whole time telling Job, God always punishes bad people. And what does God say about that? Hey, that's not true. Knock it off. We got a problem now because you are saying something about me that's not true. I'm not that God that just beats up on people because they're naughty. Verse 8 of Job 42. Now take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job, sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer. So, how are these guys going to save their own bacon? They've got to go convince Job to pray for their salvation. Say, listen, you didn't tell Job what's right about me, so I want you to understand how I work. You don't even get the joy of working the prayer out for your salvation. You've got to seek someone else to pray for you. Go and have someone intercede. And see, this is very similar to what David is doing with the Gibeonites. He's going to them and saying, what do I need to do for you that you will pray for our forgiveness, for our peace? I don't want just peace between us and the Gibeonites. I want friendship where we seek the welfare and livelihood of one another. All right, so what did Gibeon ask for? uh, Psalm uh, 21, verse, um, I don't know what verse, I'll find it. I think it's verse 4. The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have uh, the right to put anyone in Israel to death. And David says, What do you want me to do? As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us and be killed, and their do- bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So they said, we want seven of his sons to die. Seven of Saul's sons need to be put to death for the sin of Saul. I want us to understand something here. This is not David, uh, Saul's sons being put to death because of the sins of their father. What we see going on here is a representative sin of the king and the king's sons. As a son of the king, you're heir to the king, and now the king, uh, you you get to inherit the good and the bad. And as sons of the king, they have inherited his debt of injustice against Gibeah. And they said, we don't want your money, we don't want your gold, we don't want your silver. We want the whole price of our injustice paid for with the blood of Saul's sons. We, uh, we suffered a, a death and we want a representative death up, uh, for that. This is their way of saying, listen, more than seven people in Gibeah died. Seven of Saul's sons will die a representative death. You don't have to put a, a thousand people to death. Seven will be representative for what is owed. David finds seven of Saul's sons and they are hung and they die. And in fact, they die or are exposed. And over time, uh, one of the mothers of the sons stays out there, makes sure that none of the animals disturb their remains. And when David hears of this devoted mother, he finally gathers all of their remains, as well as Saul and Jonathan's remains, and they have them buried at David, at Saul's father's tomb, as a way for David to honor Saul and his family. But here's the important thing we need to understand is one guy doesn't die. Who do you think it is that doesn't die? Have you been reading ahead while I've been talking? Or have you have been doing other things? The guy that they spared was a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. This is verse 7. And David had made a covenant with Mephibosheth as a way of honoring his promise to Jonathan that no harm would come to him, and Mephibosheth from that day forward ate at the king's table with his sons. Another Mephibosheth was was one of the ones put to death, but he just had the same name as this Mephibosheth. He spared him because he had a covenant with him. The reason Mephibosheth was spared, I would suggest, is not merely because he had a covenant with King David, but because King David's covenant put him at the table of sonship. When David made a covenant with Mephibosheth because of Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan, and just I wanna, just an aside, are you ready? This is the last place in the Bible Mephibosheth is mentioned, and I am thanking God for that. Because again, if you can go home and say Mephibosheth four times and say it right, you're you're better than me. But Mephibosheth received a covenant from David to sit at his table with his sons, which in a way was David saying, "I, I consider you a son. Your sonship has switched from Saul to David. Your sonship is now not reckoned because of who gave birth to you, but who made a covenant with you. Your covenant, uh, your sonship is not based on whose home you grew up in, but at what table you eat at today. And David said, look around, who do you eat with? And I eat with David's sons. Then you're a son of David. And the people being killed today are what? Sons of Saul. Saul. And so David, as an advocate for Mephibosheth, defends him, not because he is not biologically a son of Saul, but because by covenant, he is a son of the king. And there is no death sentence for one who sits at the king's table, and Mephibosheth is spared. The sons that died bore the guilt of their father Saul because they had a covenantal relationship with Saul and the people of Gibeah, the Gibeonites. Mephibosheth was spared because he had a covenantal relationship with David, which ended his debt to the Gibeonites. What do we need from God? We need an advocate who says to us, with with no uh, reckoning of what we have done, or no understanding that we deserve it, or no understanding that we can pay back for it, we need somebody who will come come to us and say, would you eat at my table? And would you be my child? And would you uh, let my covenant with you be the primary covenant of who you are and your identity? And that's exactly what David does for Mephibosheth. He's an advocate to defend Mephibosheth's innocence. Was Mephibosheth innocent? No, he he had Saul's likeness. He looked just like him probably. Or at least Jonathan. If somebody asked Mephibosheth, who's your dad? What do you think he would say? You would say David, because sons of Saul die. Sons of David eat at his table and are sustained by a covenant relationship with him. What do we need from God? Have I reviewed it enough times yet? You're going to get it again. we need a refuge to be safe. Our own stuff and our skills won't save us. We need a place to belong. That is, we need to be in the man of God that we might be close to God that's Christ. We need a place to belong. And finally, we need an advocate to defend us. Just a couple of thoughts in each of these before we close. Number one, a refuge to be safe. I just want to ask you a question or two. First question, sitting here this morning thinking about everything, how do you know everything is okay? How do you know everything is Okay. So you say, okay, got some stuff that's kind of tough, got some stuff that's kind of good. So in in the balance of your life, you look at your whole life, how do you say, you know what, but it's going to be okay. So the question is, how do I know that it's okay? Or maybe you're like many of us, you're like, yeah, it's not okay. We're not even close to okay. Okay is a different time zone. So the question would be for us who are in that kind of situation, if blank happened, everything would be okay. That's a fill-in-the-blank question. I'm not. I, I'm not saying a bad word. If blank, that's you. Know, you're welcome. If if this happened, whatever it is in your mind, you've got that one thing, man. If this were to happen, everything would be okay. For in David's mind, regardless of what day it was, whether he was hiding in a cave or sitting in his palace, if God, then everything's okay. If if I have God, if I, if I can sit at His table, if I can come to Him for help, if I know that He can hear me, then everything will be okay. Everything else we might hope for and depend on is a false hope, as certain as it might seem to have a financial windfall or to have your health improve or to have that relationship with a family member finally uh, work, on, work out. All of these things are false uh, uh, things to stand on. And what David says, God is my refuge. If God, then everything is okay. And that's the only thing that can stand in there. And when something else is in there, we have to own it and say, you know what? I'm trusting something besides God. Absolutely. And and it's not going to do you any good to to justify yourself in your own mind because none of us know what you're thinking. That One of the first steps to really uh, moving from a, a relationship with God to this sort of passive to one that is engaging is to finally say, you know what? I'm not really trusting the Lord. I'm trusting all these other things and hope that God's in there somewhere. My suggestion is that we finally repent and say, you know what, God? I'm relying on my skills. God, I'm relying on my savings account. God, I'm relying on my work. I'm relying on my uh, children or my wife or my husband. I'm relying on all these things, and as long as these things are okay, I'm okay. And since those things aren't God, I'm not okay. Repentance is saying, God, I know what I'm relying on, and it's not you, and I want to rely on you. Show me what I need to do to trust you and you alone. Or another way of praying a prayer of repentance is saying, God, do whatever you need to do to show me that only you can be trusted. So we repent and we believe, we trust. If nothing changes, if my circumstances stay lousy, I still have God, and He is still flying out of heaven at full speed to come help. He is still my rescue. What do we need from God? We need a refuge to be safe. And often, if not daily, we need to repent. God, I'm sorry, I'm relying on something that's not you. What do we need from God? We need a place to belong. Here's my question in regard to this. When you think about what it means in your life to know God or be a Christian, is it mostly, I wonder how God is going to fit in my life Or is the question, how do I fit into God's life? When I'm thinking about my relationship with God, am I normally framing it this way? Boy, I wonder how I'm going to fit God into my day today. How am I going to fit God into my life? Or am I primarily thinking, how do I fit into God's grand scheme? By reminder, David's men followed not just a giant killer, but they followed the giant killing God. And that's where they found their place to belong, because they found the work of God—not they found the work of God that they could jump into. They didn't convince God to jump into their life. Perhaps you're like me, and many of us, we need to repent, if not daily, hourly. God, I've settled in my Christian life, and now my life is merely my life with the sight of Jesus. And I'll take him on the side. I don't want them all over the lettuce. I'll decide when to put them on the salad. So I want my life with a little Jesus sprinkled on top so it feels significant and spiritual important. And that is not a place to belong. That is a place to cram Jesus into the nooks and crannies. And frankly, Jesus won't settle for that. We need to repent of that and say, God, make my life not you fitting into my life, but make my life me joining you in what you are doing. We need to trust God with something very, very difficult to trust in. It's this. There is no life on earth more compelling than being like Jesus. I'm not kidding. There is nothing you could do on planet earth. I go wherever, wherever your mind goes on fantasy land to get away from this, get away from real life. You say, oh, if I could only be on that private yacht in the Mediterranean. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know why I'm picking the Mediterranean. Whatever it is, that ideal life that you say, oh, that would be so great, there's no life on planet Earth that is more compelling than being like Jesus. There's nothing that we're actually more designed for than being like Christ. And we haven't really found a place to belong in God as long as we're just trying to fit God into the nooks and crannies. What do we need from God? Finally, we need an advocate to defend. Very easy question, very basic question. How do you know you're a good person? How do you know you're a good person? I'm not ISIS. See, we used to say, I'm not Hitler. It's switched nowadays. We now say, I'm not ISIS, so obviously I'm a good person. So what we do when we want to establish righteousness, we pick the worst possible offenders and compare ourselves to them. Well, you know, I'm more good than bad. I'm more good than bad. I don't know how you evaluate that. Is it that you don't do a lot of really bad things, or does that mean you do a lot of really good things? Does being nice to your family count as one of your good things? That's kind of a strange thing to consider a good thing. Just everybody else does it, for the most part, or for the best we can. So what, how do I know I'm a good person? How do I know when I stand before God, I can say, God, you have to hear me because I'm righteous? How can we pray a prayer like King David? God, I am righteous and pure. How did Mephibosheth become a son of the king? This is what's funny about Mephibosheth. I'm liking this guy more and more every day. Besides his name, I call him m Dog. That would have been an insult in those days, but nowadays it's. What did Mephibosheth do to become a son of the king? This is what's crazy about the Bible. This is what's funny. You pray a prayer, walk forward, just as I am, was playing on the organ. He had dinner at the king's table, he went to dinner. Isn't that funny? Yeah, well, what did Mephibosheth to become a son of the king. David said, You want to want to eat with me? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really good. I mean, have you ever thought of your relationship with Christ in that way? how, How do I become a good person? I gotta get religion. I've been putting that off. It's like going to the doctor. Oh, I better go get a checkup, make sure I'm righteous. How does the Bible end? At a meal? At a wedding supper? Where those who are in Christ sit down and He says, hey, you guys want to have dinner? And we say, what do we say? The answer is yes. We want to have dinner. When does dinner end? Never. You never get full? I'm hoping. I don't know how it works. (laughs) Mephibosheth avoided judgment not merely by saying, okay, I'll sign a contract. I'll I'll stop being Saul's son and be your son, David. Oh, now I'm going to have to be religious. No, he said, David, yeah, I'll come, I'll come over. I'll be, I'll be one of your sons. I, I have nothing to offer. I'm crippled. I can't even walk. I can't be in your military. I, I, I can't be one of your closest advisors because of my connection with King Saul. I, literally, all I can do in your kingdom, David, is eat your food. And David said, yeah, come on in, son. How do I know I'm a good person? Because Jesus invited me to dinner, and I said, yeah, let's go. I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh will never see death. We need to repent because we think we know God because we try to do things His way. I know God because I vote Republican. No, I'm going to stop there. Stop. I know God because I know what's right and wrong. I know God because my kids turned out okay. I know God because my kids' will turn out okay. I know God because I've managed to stay married. I might uh, speak to your wife's or husband's godliness and not ours. I know God because what? How do I say I know God? Because He invited me to dinner. I said, yeah, that sounds really good. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not a to-do list. The gospel is Jesus showed up and says, I will defend you. Do you want to hang out and have dinner? And we say, that sounds really good. What do I get out of it? Righteousness and relationship with Him forever. And we need to repent in our high and mighty religious uh, thinking. We think, I know God because I know the Bible. I know God because whatever it is for you, you know God because Jesus asked you to dinner. And the meal was him, and now his righteousness is yours. And we need to repent of that and trust and say, I can know God because Jesus can make me his son, his daughter. I can eat at his table. There is nothing that holds the son or daughter back from going to the father and saying, can I have dinner? He always says yes. The only thing that will keep us from the table is us saying, We don't want to eat with you. From start to finish, the Bible is good news. It's God calling us, like David calls Mephibosheth and says, I want to defend you. I want you to come and be my son and sit at the king's table. You call up God on the way there. He said, You know what? What should I bring? A bottle of wine, some bread, maybe some chips, bag of Doritos. I don't need anything from you. This is what's incredible. God would say to us, what are you talking about? What are you going to bring? As one author said, I've quoted it many times because it's such a good quote, what's the only thing we bring to our salvation? Our sin. It's the only thing we have to offer is sin to be atoned for. And Jesus says, come and eat. I will atone your sin. What do we need from God? We need a refuge to be saved, not our own refuge. We need a place to be to belong in Christ, and we need an advocate to defend us.